if you have your Bibles or your iPhone apps or whatever it is you're using, if you could turn to Romans 12, that'd be amazing. Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks. Thank you, you're always speaking. So, Father, would we have ears that hear what you want to say to us this morning? Father, would we have ears that hear and hearts that receive? Father, I pray for something that is transformative and illuminating. Um, because when you speak, there's always a purpose to it. You don't just speak for the fun of it. It's to bring change. It's to bring encounter. It's to bring revelation. So, God, would you reveal yourself to us? Would we encounter you? And in such a way that we're changed and transformed, that we would leave here knowing what we need to do to bring ourselves increasingly into alignment, which is righteousness, with what you're doing. Because we want to see in our lives what you've called us to, what you've promised to us. We want to do the things that you did, Jesus. And we want to walk in obedience and relationship with you continually. So, Father, would you do that through us? this morning in your name amen okay so Romans 12 Romans 12 um, the book of Romans that wonderful book in the New Testament which some people describe as the Himalayas of the New Testament Romans 8 is the Everest of the New Testament and it's one of those books that a lot of us just go it's got lots of big words that don't make much sense to us but we know it's really good because everyone tells us it's really good so we go yeah it's really good but there's some bits of it I don't really understand but I get Romans 8, because no, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Yay, I like that bit. <laughs> Romans 12, renewing our minds. Yeah, I get that bit. I think I've got a mind to renew. Yay. So we're going to look at Romans and Romans 12, because I think there's some things in there which are, I just want to look at this morning, which are, um, if you like, keys for spiritual growth. So I've got um, a PowerPoint presentation, which hopefully Gideon's going to have up, um, I want to look at five patterns that steward our spiritual growth. Five patterns that help us steward our spiritual growth, looking at Romans 12. My key question I want to look at today, and hopefully answer for everyone, is this. What disciplined patterns can we embrace that lead us deeper into the joy of knowing God? What disciplined patterns, I know that's a bad word in church, discipline. What disciplined patterns can we embrace that lead us deeper into the joy of knowing God more? Many of us have been taught about spiritual disciplines. Pray. Read your Bible. Go to church. Tithe. Serve. Tell people about Jesus. Read the Old Testament and pretend you like it. Pray, but don't tell people how much you pray because you don't want people to think you're a heathen because you don't pray enough. Go to church. Serve. And there can sometimes be this sense where um, well-meaning teaching is you have to do these things to grow as a Christian. And we all know they're good things, don't we? We all know prayer is a good thing. We all know the Bible is a good thing, even the bits that we don't quite get or don't quite make sense to us. We know it's a good thing in the bits that we're not quite sure about. We know that going to church and serving is a good thing, etc., etc. But they're called spiritual disciplines because it sounds like they aren't any fun. So being a Christian means you're signing up for a lifetime of joy everlasting that isn't fun. Anyone relate to that? Or is that just me in my heathen ways? Okay, if it's just me, I'll talk to myself, that's Okay. So I've got, if I'm honest, a bit of a love-hate relationship with spiritual disciplines. Because I've been taught, since I was saved in my teens, spiritual disciplines, spiritual disciplines, spiritual disciplines. What does that mean? Be disciplined spiritually. How do you be disciplined spiritually? Through spiritual disciplines. That, 
that, that doesn't help me that much. But they're all good things, aren't we? So you kind of sign up for this life of, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. And sometimes we do it better than other times. And sometimes we come away going, woohoo, I've done it. Yay, I'm amazing as a Christian. I'm going to change the world. And other times we come away going, I'm rubbish. I've not done it very well at all. Jesus, I don't know if I'm even saved. But we kind of keep getting on this treadmill, don't we, of going through the motion sometimes. Sometimes we do things and we come away with the funny feelings. Sometimes we come away feeling absolutely nothing. And if we're not careful, our Christianity gets reduced to what we do as activity to please God and to show God how serious we are about him. Which actually therefore means that our feelings dictate our spiritual reality. Which in the new covenant is crazy because our position in him dictates our spiritual reality, not our feelings. So I want to talk about some patterns that maybe will be spiritual disciplines, but maybe look at them from another angle or other way. Because I think what I want to bring this morning, and my heart is this, that we leave liberated. We leave feeling like, yes, I can do this stuff. And I can do this stuff in some other ways that maybe I've been taught or have been modelled to me throughout the years. But I know I need to do the stuff. So let's leave with some impetus to do the stuff again in a new way. Is that okay? Because the goal is not to read our Bible more. The goal is not to pray more. The goal is not to go to church more. The goal is not to be this or that more. The goal is to know God and know God in joy. That's the, that's the goal. So if the goal of our spiritual disciplines isn't joy, we're not doing it right. If it's not, the kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy. So if our spiritual disciplines and spiritual walk doesn't lead us to growing our righteousness, growing our peace, and growing our joy, we're not doing it right. And I don't want to say that to tell people off. You're not doing it right. If we're not doing it right, let's change how we do it so we grow in our righteousness, our peace, and our joy. Yeah? Brilliant. So, good practices practiced unhealthily become bad practices. And some people need to hear that right away. If you're doing the right thing the wrong way, it's the wrong thing. So how can we practice our spiritual disciplines in a way that bring liberation and not condemnation? Now, for some of us who are the type A, alpha, go-getter, our risk is that we can become snared in legalism, ritual, and performance. That isn't great, because Jesus has done the stuff. We can't, our salvation, our Christianity is not Jesus plus what I do. Because that's what the whole of the, the, the letter of Galatians is written about. Oh, thanks. But for some of us, when we talk about spiritual disciplines, which is why I've called it patterns, you see what I've done there, we actually can just hear this and go, oh, spiritual disciplines. Well, you've just punched me in the face, not once, but twice, because now I don't think I'm spiritual, and I definitely don't think I'm disciplined. I don't want any of us to tune out. I don't want any of us to tune out because of that. Here's another interesting thing, which is a, it's a little bit of a bugbear of mine sometimes. Maybe this is just me because of who I am and how I'm wired, but I've noticed times in my life where someone decides that I need their help, and so they come to me because they want to help me be more spiritual, they want to help me be more disciplined, and they call it discipleship. Is that just me? Anyone else relate to that? Let's do the Christian thing and have a show of hands. Anyone else relate to that where you feel like this discipleship just makes me feel bad? 
Okay, you're doing the Christian thing. We go. I'm going to kind of put my half hand up because I don't want to be. I want to be humble, but I'm kind of not committing to anything. I'm going to sit on the fence. Okay, no, that's not always the case, obviously. And I'm not saying that everyone has that intention. But sometimes discipleship becomes another chore or a burden, and you go, you feel bad because you go, I know I need to be discipled. I know I need to be walking in community. I know I need people inputting into my life. But every time I come away, I feel like someone's got my head, and for an hour, gone bang, bang, bang. I don't want to talk about my sin for an hour because there's loads of stuff I don't want to talk about in an hour. I haven't, I've got more sin that can be talked about in an hour, and I just walk away feeling rubbish again. That's not what discipleship is. So again, we've got to think, we've got to reframe our thinking. And that's why the first verse in Romans 12, which we're looking at, talks about renewing our mind. It means changing our thinking. Psychologists call it reframing. It's a new perspective. So for some of these things I'm talking about, part of the shift is getting a new perspective about them. I once had a, a, a guy in, who is a, is a leader in the church I was in. And he was a great guy. He was a godly guy. Um, he um, decided that I needed spiritual discipline. So he was like, why don't you join my discipleship group with other men? Yeah, we'll be men together. Yeah. And I'm like, brilliant. We're watching football, drinking beer down the pub. No, that's not spiritual or discipline. No, 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 no. You're going to come to my office at the church at 5 a.m. in the morning, and we're going to read a book together. Really? Oh, no, it gets better because they gave me the book and I can read. I can read, believe it or not, I can read. So I read the book. So I went there at 5 o'clock in the morning. It was probably close to 5.15. And guess what? For an hour, the book that I had read in the week was being read to me. But I came away feeling more spiritual and more disciplined. No, no, I didn't. I came away thinking, I've missed out. You've involuntarily made me fast because I haven't been able to have any breakfast. I had to get up at four o'clock because I had to get ready for work and then, and then come, to the, you know, come across the town to get to the church. Now I've got to go back to, I've got to go into work. I've got to do a full day's work. You work for the church. You could finish work at like 10 o'clock. <laughs> Who's, who, is this developing patience and grace in me? Maybe that's the spiritual discipline. Lord, thank you for suffering. You know... Maybe it's just maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me. Maybe you're all so much better, nicer, godlier than me. Here's my here's my problem. I've got lots of problems. Here's my problem with this. I actually think there's been some bad historical thinking that's crept in to the church when we think about this whole area of spiritual discipline, discipleship, all that kind of stuff. It's Gnostic thinking. Gnostic thinking, which Colossians and 1 John are actually refuting. And Gnosticism was a belief that was floating around at the first century, the same time that you know, the church was getting up and running, which basically taught this, that the physical, the flesh, the natural world is really bad and corrupt and tainted, but the spiritual world and the spiritual realm is really wonderful and amazing. So that leads to two kind of ways of thinking. The first area of thinking is everything in the natural realm is evil and must be punished. Because everything spiritual is wonderful. The other thinking is, what we do in the, in the natural doesn't really matter because the flesh in the natural world is bad. So I can do whatever I want to live however I like because spiritual thinking is fine and dandy. So I can do whatever I want in my body. And you can see why Paul writes some things in Corinthians saying, actually what you do with your body does matter. Because the thing with the Gnostics is, they, did, they had issues with Jesus coming in the flesh. God becoming 
flesh, the incarnation, because that blew up their entire belief system. But the problem is, because it was so rooted in Greek thinking, and we're not going to talk about this sort of stuff really, but as a point, as the kind of the church grew and theology developed, there was Greek philosophy kind of creeping and seeping into some of the thinking. And what happened was some decisions were made and some judgments and kind of culture was created, which actually had aspects of this Greek thinking in the kind of the mindset. And it's actually really why today we have monks and priests who are celibate. It's the same thinking because the spirit, the flesh, natural stuff is bad, so we don't do anything with it because it's more spiritual to deny yourself and punish yourself. It's why actually sometimes the church has had massive hang-ups about sex. It's why the church has had massive hang-ups with people having wealth because you think, well, that's really bad because it's the natural realm. But if you were spiritual, you'd be really poor. But that's not biblical at all. It's actually some of the reasons why, the, uh, again, not every single church, but some thinking has been, if you work for the church as like a preacher or a pastor, you've got the ultimate calling. All other jobs are secondary and not as important. Which, again, is rubbish thinking, even back in Genesis. And I think sometimes some of our teaching and thinking about spiritual disciplines and discipleship comes from the same angle. If I suffer and make myself, like, cause myself a bit of pain or discomfort, I'm being spiritual because I'm proving to God how serious I am about him. And I just want to say that's a load of nonsense. I have to be disciplined because I have to show God how much I love him. Look how much I inconvenience myself to be spiritual. Look, God, I read Leviticus in Hebrew. God, I prayed for so long my tongue's swollen up in my mouth. God, I fasted so well I've hospitalized myself. Psalms tells me that in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. So anything that doesn't connect us to the presence of God and lead to joy actually is not helpful for us. So the goal is joy, not pain, because joy is the greatest motivator in relationships. Discipline is a good thing. Martyrdom, in this context, is not. So, Romans 12 what patterns can we look at to steward our spiritual growth? Okay, with me? Fantastic. Romans 12, starting at verse 1, we're going to read 13 verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that, you, by, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good, acceptable, and perfect. For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone amongst you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and members do not have the same function, so we... Though many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If it's prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Five patterns in that passage which help us steward our growth. I'll go through each of them individually, but the five are, we steward our spiritual growth through our intimacy, through our input, through our influences, through our output, and through our introspection. So verse one, our intimacy. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, the Greek word here that's been translated worship is latria. There's two words often used. The first one is proskunio, which is, means to kiss, to kiss towards. It's, uh, we think about the, the lady who came in and, and kissed Jesus' feet after lavishing perfume on his feet. It's that act of devotion and love. I kiss as an act of worship. That's not the word used here. It's a different word, latria. It means to serve, but historically, what it means, because we hear that and go, oh, yeah, okay. The meaning of it has depth. It's actually um, a more of a sense of I serve something or someone because I am dedicated to them. I give my life to this person. I give my life to this cause. And so actually, scripturally, it's used in worship to talk about having a total, wholehearted, 100% dedication to God. It means that actually worship is a constant giving of ourselves and everything about ourselves to him. So what it means then is worship is holistic. It's not just about singing songs. That's an aspect or an outworking or a manifestation of worship. Worship is emotional in the sense that it is devotional. But it's also practical because it involves holiness. It involves dedicating our life and aspects of our life to him. So worship that is genuine, that is spirit and truth, actually should impact and change our internal world and our external world. Because dedication like that has to involve intimacy. Because intimacy means, into me you see. Into me you see. There's nothing hidden with intimacy. There's nothing hidden. If there's things that are hidden, it's not true intimacy. 95% intimacy is not intimacy. So this heart of worship means we present ourselves to God and we say, God, here I am. Irrespective of my warts, my past, my present, my issues, my sin, here I am. Intimacy. You see me, God. You see me. And that's an act of worship, actually. That's an act of worship. There was a season in my life um, a number of years ago where um, it was probably the toughest time of my life. Uh, My life basically crumbled and fell apart. And the best thing about it was it's not some kind of spiritual, oh, it was oppression or it was demonic. It was me. I was stupid. I did stupid, sinful things. And the impact and consequences of those decisions basically meant that, understandably, my life fell apart and things in my life that were important to me dissipated and went and gone. And all I could do to kind of navigate this season, which was, you know, pretty tough, and we're not talking about like a couple of days. It wasn't, I had a bad day. Oh, God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it was a a rough year. It was a really rough year. 
And my walk with God, literally, all I could do because of where I was at inside was sit down with him and through tears and through anger and through rage and through self-pity and through blame and through self-justification and all those things that we know aren't very good, but, you know, we, we do them. And I did them. I could sit there and go and pray through a psalm every day. That's all I could do. I prayed through a psalm. I'd get a line of a psalm, I'd read it, and I'd turn it into prayer. And the amount of times the psalms were capturing exactly where I was at that day was incredible. And it was rough. And, and honestly, it wasn't like there was some great spiritual strategy or master plan I had. It was like, God, I need to get through today. Get me through today. This is where I'm at today. And I can say, I don't ever want to go through that season of my life ever again. But I can say I spiritually grew probably more than any other time in my life, if I'm honest. Um, and I came out understanding, and I see in Psalms now, it's, it colours how I see Psalms. Psalms, for me, has a dual revelation of God in it to me, where first thing is I saw God is the most high. He is the most high. There is no one higher or above him. Nothing catches him by surprise. Nothing outwits him. Nothing is beyond his scope or his influence. But he's also the steadfast one who never leaves never walks away, never turns his back. He always holds our hands. He's the most high and he's the steadfast one. Intimacy leads to revelation and revelation changes us. So the purpose of prayer is actually because it does us good. Yes, it influences God, but actually it changes and influences us. And some of us in this room, are battling disappointment with God. And for some of us, not all of us, not all of us, but for some of us, we have disappointment with God because we don't have regular appointments with him. We don't walk with him through the pain. We don't walk with him through despair. We don't walk with him with the hopelessness. We take it on ourselves. We take on the burdens on, us, on ourselves of pain and suffering when actually the steadfast one is saying, I'm here and I want to walk with you through it. The steadfast one who is the most high and can change it is saying, walk with me. Walk with me. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's not take things on ourselves, but let's walk with him. Appointments with him helps us know how to handle disappointment. So let's be practical. I'm going to be really practical today because otherwise I'm just standing up going, we should do things differently and then not talk about maybe how we could do things differently. That's a bit pointless. So I'm going to be kind of throwing lots of Ideas, thoughts, sort of things. Take what works for you. Dismiss what doesn't. Um, we're all individuals. So if we ever kind of try and do these things through a method or a model or a formula, we've missed the whole essence, which is intimacy and heart. And seasons of life change. So sometimes things work and then they just stop working. It's like, all right, try something different. That's okay. That's our relationship. So I'm married and my relationship with my wife is really different now than it was before we had two children who don't let us ever sleep or have time alone. I don't mean to sound that bitter. I apologise if that came across. <laughs> it's okay. I don't mean that I'm looking for the promised land of when they leave home. Because obviously, you know, they're one and they're three. I've got a while to wait. And I take my own advice about walking through disappointment. No, no, it's not. I don't mean that. <laughs> you know. But things change, and that's totally okay. That's totally okay. So what does intimacy and your time of intimacy with God look like? Or what could it look like? Jesus got up early and prayed. Some people love to focus, he got up early and prayed. It's more about the fact that he prayed that he got up early. So actually, what's your wiring 
And what's your season of life? Maybe you are an early riser. That's fantastic. Maybe you're a night owl and you're the one of some of these people who stay up when everybody else has gone to bed. That's totally okay as well. You're waiting for the moon to go to sleep before you go to bed. That's totally fine. Maybe it's snatched moments through the day because you've got, I don't know, children or responsibilities or whatever. And, you know, the idea, the dream of having five minutes alone is, a, is you know, paradise. <laughs> Jesus, one day. But what does it look like? What could work? And what about those verses which Paul says about pray continually, pray constantly, and you kind of cross those ones out? Not in a highlighting way, so they stand out, but in that black biro, I'm not going to see that bit in my Bible. Pray continually, pray constantly, cross that bit out. What does that look like? How do you do that? Maybe just not having one slot of prayer, but maybe just kind of arrow prayers throughout the day. Using technology. Technology can be a, a master, or it can be a servant. Having reminders you know, every half an hour, every hour, every two hours, whatever works, to pray, to just kind of fire up whatever's on your spirit, whatever God's been dropping in, you know, intercession or petition or thanksgiving or confession or whatever's going on. What does that look like? Because intimacy, you know, <laughs> if I said to Katie, right, Katie, we're going to have our time of intimacy and it's going to be 9.30 for 45 minutes every weekday, but we'll have Sundays off because we go to church, so that counts, and that's that. Okay, so let's not talk between then. What are you talking to me about? It's half past four. Go away. This isn't our time. I'm doing the work of the Lord. You know, that's just a bit weird. But sometimes we can be a bit like that with God. So what does intimacy look like? Where? Where can you do it? Again, if you've got kids or you've got other people living with you, you don't necessarily have spare rooms that haven't got Lego death traps on the floor for you. So what do you do? So at the moment, for me... I go for walks. That's what I do. Sometimes I've got children in the buggy with me. Sometimes I have the blessed 10 minutes away. What does that look like? What about your commutes? You can redeem the time. You don't have to be inside. You don't have to be outside. Maybe doing chores, doing the hoovering, washing up, whatever that looks like, those kind of few minutes. Jesus went to the wilderness. He withdrew. So what's the wilderness retreat for you? Where is that? And how? Maybe you you like making lists and you've got a prayer list. Maybe you're more spontaneous as things come to mind. Maybe you you walk through the Lord's Prayer, which was given to us by Jesus as a guide to prayer. Maybe you pray for a psalm a day. Whatever it is, intimacy has to lead to revelation. It has to be liberating because it changes us. Number two, our inputs. Our inputs. Don't be conformed to this world. This is verse two. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, the Greek word here for conformed means to fit a mold to fit a mold. So what you could say, what Paul is saying through this verse, he's saying this, don't fit the mold of the world's ways, but be changed into something else by thinking differently. Be changed by thinking differently. So actually, what we think matters. What's in our brain matters. And Jesus said it's the same principle, what's in a man's heart comes out of his mouth. So what's going in actually does influence and shape us. And we're surrounded by input. 
aren't we? We're surrounded by input. What we see, constant. What we hear is constant. What we read is constant. And everything has got a message. Everything is trying to convince us or persuade us about something or other. Some of it is explicit. Some of it is explicit. Everything is. And we need to make sure that we are mindful in what we are reading, listening to, watching. Because we might need to counteract or push back against some messages that are coming to us through different things that are around out there. So what are you watching? What are you listening to? And what are you reading? Now, I'm not going the other way and going down the kind of crazy Gnostic thinking that we were talking about earlier on. I'm not like, all media is bad, all TV is bad, I only have listened to classical music. Because, you know, if you know anything about the composers, they were really righteous in their lifestyles. Actually, I quite like TV. Me and Katie happen to think that West Wing is the greatest TV programme ever invented. And if you've never seen it, repent. And if you have seen it, and you don't think so, you need to repent twice. I really like music. I obviously have incredible taste in music, and I'm introducing Sophie to great music, and we're working towards her understanding the Beatles. I hear some sniggers. I'm going to choose their sniggers of, of agreement and not disbelief. I have been known to read graphic novels. Not comics, graphic novels. There is a difference. And not DC, Marvel, just to clear that one up. But that's not all I watch, all I listen to, and all I read. What I want to make sure is that the balance of the input in my life is wise and beneficial to me. So let's be practical. What, what are you reading? What are you reading? I'm reading the Bible because I'm a really good Christian. Brilliant, fantastic. Hope Reads is an amazing initiative, and all of us should be involved in that. But what else are you reading? Because we all read things in the Bible that we don't quite understand or get or need to think through or even agree with. So what are we doing about that? Who are you reading? Who is challenging your thinking? And what subjects are you reading about? Now, not everyone here is a reader, I understand that. But we live in a wonderful age of technology where there's things like podcasts. There's also things like Audible, which is audiobooks, which you can listen as you walk or you commute or whatever. There's so many sermons from so many great people available online, though, videos as well as audio. So you can watch if you're a watcher. Watch your wiring, what works best for you. There's so many different books that are quality of different levels as well. Spirituality is not measured by books. The bigger the book doesn't mean it's a better book. The older the book doesn't mean it's a better book. But some old books and some fat books are good books. Some are rubbish. Sometimes you've got to read and work it out. But there's so many different levels. I've got a friend who basically literally would only read books by people who have been 500 years old, dead. Not alive, because that would be really weird. You know, it's like, I've got a book about Jesus, and it's 5,000 years old. It's amazing. Like, really? 5,000 years old, a book about Jesus? So you're not quite right there. With the writer or your maths? If you find reading a challenge, what about reading in a partnership or a pair or a group? What about forming a book group and reading something together? 
I've done this at different times. There's different ways you can do this. It's revolutionary. You can read something, then meet up with people and talk about it. Or you can meet up with people, read it together, and then talk about it. Don't, just don't do what happened to me, which is you meet up and someone reads it to you after you've read it. Because that seems a, just a waste of time. But how do you know what to read? Because there's so many books, isn't there? You go to Amazon or bookshops, and everyone's like, this is the best book in the world, it'll change your life. And everyone's got 15 books that changes their life. <laughs> you know, you're like, okay, well, where do you start? Good questions to ask. What's God doing in me? What's God speaking to me about? What do I need to grow in? What do I need to get better in? What do I need to learn about? What's essential for what God's called me to do? And if you're not sure about your calling, think about your giftings, because our giftings are connected to our callings. I read books about preaching before I ever preached my first sermon, because I knew it was something I was called to do. So I thought, I'd rather learn, have an idea what I'm doing before I do it, than revising during a sermon, because that's going to be awkward. Read around the areas God's talking to you about. Read things that you disagree with, so you can work out why you disagree. Get recommendations. Now, obviously, again, with reading, technology can really help us. You can get the Kindle app or iBooks on phones, and pretty much all of us have got phones with us all the time. So you can snatch reading a page or a couple of pages or a chapter whilst the kettle's boiling, whilst you're in a queue, or whilst you're on hold for three hours of your life. You can snatch, you can read. Whether you read in the morning, because you get time, whether you read in the evening, whether you read your commute, whether you read on your break, read little, read often. It doesn't matter how much you read, it's more about what you do with what you read. It's not about, I finished a book in a week. Woohoo! Do you know what? If it takes you a year to read a book, it doesn't matter. What do you do with what you're reading? Because God will speak to you through it. Because you're getting the best thoughts of people condensed in a document in front of you. So what you need to think about is, is this person someone worth learning from? But I don't remember what I read. Well, I don't remember what I had for dinner last week, but it still nourished me. Pattern three, our influences. Verses verses three, three to five, three, four, and five. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone amongst you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Our first influencer in our life is actually us. It's us. And this little kind of section, these three verses, verse 3, starts with a verse about humility. But it's not talking about self-dismissal. It's saying, think with sober judgment in accordance with your faith. Now, sober judgment is a rational process, isn't it? It's thinking clearly. It's thinking rationally. It's thinking intelligently. It's thinking analytically. But it's also saying you need a measure of faith, which means with God eyes, with God awareness, with kingdom perspective. So what this verse is actually saying is, don't have a view of yourself that's self-important. Sometimes for some of us, self-importance means I'm a Billy Bighead and I'm amazing. But sometimes for some of us, self-importance could be the other way. I'm, I'm rubbish, I'm a victim, woe is me, everything's horrible, and we make ourselves the center of the world. So we make ourselves the center of the world by thinking we're amazing, and we make ourselves the center of the world by thinking we're rubbish. But that's actually, in a weird way, both thinking too highly of ourselves. So what this verse is saying is, don't have a view of yourself that's self-important, but know who God says you are. And that's what identity is. 
That's what identity is, which is a word we throw around. It's not us deciding how high or low we think of ourselves, but letting God tell us. So we listen to him rather than listening to ourselves. So whose thoughts do you contemplate? Do we listen to ourselves or do we talk to ourselves? That's why David in Psalms says, Oh my soul, why are you so downcast? He's given himself a pep talk. Snap out of it. Snap out of it. This didn't go very well. You've had a bad day. You've done something stupid. You made a mistake. Okay, snap out of it. It doesn't define who you are. God defines who you are. And he says, you're a son. You're beloved. You're cherished. You're sat in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. You have inheritance. You're adopted. You're justified. You're declared innocent. You are righteous. You're the righteousness of God. You're part of me. You're in me. That's it. It's a game changer. What you've just done doesn't change any of that. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. Anything or anyone that says anything counter to that is an influence that you kind of go, right, I've got to deal with this. But it's not us thinking too much or too highly of ourselves. It's us letting the king of the universe define who we are. But there's also other influences we have in our life as well. Other people. And that's why Paul is using in this this scripture the image of the body, his famous illustration. Are you with me? Is this helpful? Is this, is this provoking? Are people finding people provoking? Good. Okay, that's good. He's talking about the body. We're all in the body. We're united to the body. We're all different, but we're all part of the body. So how connected are we to the body? Because we can say, well, I'm connected spiritually because I'm a Christian. But actually, it's practical. Because if it's spiritual but not practical, it's just, hello, we've embraced the Gnostic thinking again. So what we do is an outworking of what actually is truth in us and through us. So who we are is needed. Are we fully ourselves? Are we connected? Are we in relationship? Are we in relationship? Matthew 28, this is the Great Commission. Jesus says, the job description of the church, not the church and every church, go and make disciples. Go into all the earth, make disciples. It is impossible to be an apostolic movement without making disciples. It is impossible to have any apostolic impact without making disciples. It's impossible to see heaven come down to earth without making disciples. Because the point is, heaven comes to earth, people are transformed and changed, and then they go out and are salt and light to see city transformation, society transformation, marriage transformation, parenting transformation, school and work and media transformation. But it only works if there's discipleship happening. If there's no discipleship, it ain't happening. It'll peter out. It'll peter out. And it's not leaders making disciples, it's disciples making disciples. Because Jesus said to them, go and make disciples. Now, oh yeah, but they were leaders at the beginning. They were the only 12 that Jesus got. You know, and actually there were some the disciples were a little bit nuts in places, aren't they? They're a little bit they were a bit funny in some places. But disciples make disciples. So if you're a disciple, who are you discipling and who are you being discipled by? Are we disciplable? Are we teachable? Are we connected? Are we vulnerable? Are we drawing on the strength of other people? Hebrews says, don't give up meeting with one another. Sometimes we can withdraw from community, and it's the first sign that something's not going right. And as Peter Reese talks about the the, enemy is like a roaring lion who's prowling around looking for someone to devour. And if you ever watch lions hunt in packs, what they do is they circle wildebeest or antelope or whatever it is they're going to have for lunch that day, 
and they pick out the stragglers, the ones on the edge, the young who are stupid, the old, the sick who can't get away, and they pounce. They don't go in for the ones who are in the middle because they know they've got to get through millions of hooves and horns and teeth. They go for the ones that decide, eh, I'm not quite with these guys. And that's what that verse is saying. We make ourselves easy picking sometimes because we withdraw from the protection and covering of community. Jesus poured into three, and he poured into the twelve. Paul has Barnabas, Titus, and Timothy. Elijah has Elisha. Who's your partner or partners? Who are you pouring into and who's pouring into you? Now, we need three types of voices in our life. Okay? A prophetic voice, a priestly voice, and a kingly voice. Okay? What do I mean by that? The prophetic voice is the voice of challenge. The priestly voice is the voice that's champion. And the kingly voice is the voice that's like a coach or a mentor. Who says the tough things to you? That prophetic, oh, I really want to punch you in the face right now, but I know you're right. Who affirms you no matter how good you are or how bad you are? The person who can see, there's a lady who every time I used to preach in the church I was part of the leadership team was, I could get up and preach about carrots and she'd be like, that's the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. And part of me is like, oh, yeah, of course. But actually, you're like, oh. I knew that I had at least one person who would like what I did. And we all need that person who would champion us. But if all we've got is people who say, why did you do that? That's not smart. But if we've only got people who say, you're amazing, that's not smart either. We also need the kingly voice, who's someone who sees us, sees our gifting, sees our wiring, and opens doors for us, helps us release and unleash our potential, and walks with us so that we can go places and do things we can never do on our own. So who are those? Who are your voices? I had a friend who said to me once, you're amazing. Well, thank you very much. But not everything you do is amazing. What? What? But I, I needed that. I needed that. We all need those voices. Now, I know the word discipleship can trigger some of us because we've had bad experiences. We've had controlling experiences. It's been painful, all these kind of things. I want to take 30 seconds now to do something. I'm conscious of the time. If you've had, if when I say discipleship, it triggers something in you. It's like, oh, I, no, I'm not touching that with a barge pole. Oh, I want you to stand up because I want to break something off you. Okay? There might be three of us. It might be all of us. I'm standing, but yeah, if you've been discipled in a way that felt unhealthy, bad, Oh, then I love you to stand up. Okay, good. There's more of you. There's definitely more of you. Okay. Right, okay, just close your eyes. If you're there, if you're near someone, just put your hand on them. We're going to take this for 10 seconds. Father, I thank you, you're a God who liberates, and I thank you, you're a God who heals. Father, we break off the power of words that have been spoken over these people in the name of discipleship. And Father, we say, being released now in Jesus' name, Father, I pray for the dropping of redemptive thinking that discipleship is not a bad thing, it was just done badly that one time. And Lord, I pray for courage and boldness to be able to be vulnerable again and trust in a process again that is a godly process in the name of Jesus. Amen. And for some of you guys, you can sit down, you may need to forgive some people. You may need to forgive some people. Don't let the devil rob you of something really good.
So what could discipleship look like? What could it look like? Now, we can call it coaching or mentoring, all those kind of things, but what does it look like? The classic model is having a one-on-one once a week for 300 years. That's a model, but not the model. Maybe you do meet one-on-one, but maybe you could be two-on-one, you could be three-on-one, you could be four-on-one. Maybe you meet weekly, maybe you meet fortnightly, maybe you meet monthly. But start slow, just see where it goes. I've got different people in my life who speak to me about different areas. And maybe you can do that as well. I've got someone I can talk to about theology. I've got someone I can talk to about parenting and marriage and business and these different things that I've got going on. So it doesn't have to be one person who's a guru of knowledge for every single thing in their life. Draw, drink from lots of streams, lots of springs. Look for people who you see God in, God on, and God through. And pursue, pursue, pursue. Don't decide that someone's too busy. Let them decide if they're busy or not. They're too busy to meet with me. That's just victim thinking. Go and see. You might not be able to get them for every hour, for every single day. But you know what? If you want it, work it out. You don't have to meet face-to-face. You can use FaceTime. You can use Skype. Particularly if you're able to, not able to get out. There's other ways of doing it. There's a tool called Zoom, which lets you actually have group video chats. We can use technology to help us. Be amazing at asking questions. Because no one likes an awkward Angus. I want to meet with you. Great. And then 55 minutes into your hour chat, they then decide to drop a bomb about something. You're like, why didn't you do that right at the beginning? All I've done is let my latte go cold, waiting for you to say something. So ask questions. Have things to say. A great question to ask someone when they come to you is, what are you going to do? Because it shows commitment, and it also reveals where someone's at. God puts the lonely into families. So if we want it, we've got to go after it and pursue it. It's a vulnerable thing, and we can be scared of rejection. But do you know what? That's actually sometimes something the enemy uses to keep us from something that's amazing. I want to do something really quickly, again, because I'm conscious of time. Um, A couple of weeks ago, Jan preached on spiritual fathers and mothers, and she got people, asked people who felt they had like a, whether you call it a fathering or a mothering anointing, or um, you know you've got something to give, you've got something in you, and you have a heart and a passion to help people, whether we want to call that discipleship or coaching or mentoring or whatever words we want to call it. But if you know you've got something in you and you're like, I am available and accessible to people who want to draw and pull on me, if that's you... Please just stand up. It's okay if you stand, it's okay if you don't stand. Okay. Now, this doesn't mean you're a spiritual guru that's got everything in your life sorted. It just means you're on a journey, and in your journey, you feel like you've got some things that may be a blessing to other people. All right, okay. Everybody who's sitting down, let's have an awkward 10 seconds where we look at all of these beautiful people, maybe turn around to look at everyone, Pick someone who looks handsome, or who looks godly, or you know they've got something that you want to draw from. Maybe write their name down. I'm standing up as well. And in the next week, reach out and connect to them and say, I'd love to, love to catch up with you, and then work it out. Because if you're sitting there saying, well, who's going to invest in me? Who's going to invest in me? Well, the first step is you going to someone and saying, would you invest in me? Okay? Let's continue. We have an awkward three seconds. Okay, I'm going to race with the last two points. Are you still with me? You okay? All right, I know we've got all the food at the back, and I can see the food, so I'm like, ooh. Okay, 
Pattern four, output. I'm really near the end, okay? At output. In verses six to eight, Paul lists all these spiritual gifts. If you've got this gift, do this. If you've got this gift, do that. If you've got this gift, do that. Brilliant. It's our output. But Paul's not really teaching about uh, spiritual gifts. What he's teaching is, use your spiritual gifts. Use your spiritual gifts. Because the verse just before was talking about being part of the body. And if you're part of the body, use what God's put in you to bless the body. Because our gifts are not for us. They're actually for everybody else around us. Because our gifts are a way for people to encounter God. They're the grace of God to other people. So when we function in the, in the manner using the tools and the gift that God's given us, we bring blessing to others, and it also blesses us because we have an outflow or an output. Lakes have both an inflow and an outflow. If they don't have an outflow, they become stagnant and they become a place of death. What God puts in us, he wants us to use. And the biblical word for that is stewardship. And biblically, stewardship always leads to increase because when we're faithful with what he's given us, he gives us more. So what are your gifts? If you aren't sure, who can you ask to find out? Because other people see what we don't see. What are you doing with your gifts? If you're not sure, who can you ask for suggestions? What about if you want to grow in a gift? Well, who can you see who's got that gift and feels like they're a little bit, you know, maybe using it a bit more? Grab hold of him. What about if there doesn't seem like a natural place for you to express your gift? Well, sometimes we just serve in an area that's around us and God actually grows us. We build the wall in front of us. I, um, after I was, in, I was in South Africa for a, a while with Julian Adams, and I was doing all this kind of prophetic ministry, and it was all really cool. Yay, woo. I went back to my church thinking, oh, they're going to get me to do prophetic stuff. Woo, woo, woo. It's going to be amazing. And they were like, can you please be the children's pastor? I wasn't married and didn't have kids. I was like, do you want these children to live? Like, are you sure this is a good idea? But there was a need, and God said, you need to fill that need. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. So I sat down with my team, who were all full of amazing mums and dads and grandfathers and grandparents, and said, I have no idea about kids. I don't want to do nappies. I like children for about half an hour. But what I can do is I can teach, I can lead, I can organize, and I can pass the leaders. And actually, that's what happened. God used me in those gifts And not only did I grow in those gifts, but I grew in other gifts as well. And I grew in my heart and I grew in my understanding and insight because he added wisdom to me because I learned things through working with other people and working with children. It made my teaching better because they don't care about theology. They don't care about Greek. They're just, what's for lunch? You're like, you've just eaten, it's 10 o'clock. It did me good, did me good. Sometimes we just got to find the need and step in and God will help us. And my last point. We're coming into land. Introspection. The last four verses from verse 9. Paul says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and so on. He lists all these things that are attitudes and actions for us to embrace that cultivate Christ-likeness. What he's saying is, look at yourself, look at your life and see if you're living in a Christ-like manner. To see if you're growing spiritually. So there's actually a biblical principle that it's okay to look at our life and see how we're doing. Not with self-criticism and not with self-ignorance. We don't be like, look at our lives, I'm rubbish in every single way. And we don't go the other way. And are like, I'm amazing in every single way. It's just basically reviewing our life. Timothy says, Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. 
So good questions to ask yourself. What's God saying to you? But what are you doing about it? Because the two have to go together. But God's not saying anything to me right now. Okay. So what was the last thing God said to you? And what have you done about it? Another couple of good questions to ask to help us just take stock and be introspective in a good way. What's God doing in you? What's his fingerprints on? What's he working on? What areas of our character or, your, or our lives or, or whatever is he kind of just prodding and saying, let's talk about that. What's he doing in you? What's he doing around you? In the circumstances, in your environment, at home, in work, in marriage, in ministry. And how can you partner with what he's doing in you, with what he's doing around you? Focus leads to growth if it's coupled with perseverance. And healthy spiritual formation, healthy spiritual discipline, to use that word, doesn't happen unless there is both individual action and community input. We need both. We need the input of other people, and also we need to take responsibility for ourselves and do something. And that's how we grow, because we steward what he's put in us, we steward what he's doing with us, we invite others into that process of stewarding, and guess what? We grow. We grow. We grow. That's what discipleship is. It's walking on the pathway of knowing Jesus with others, talking along the way. You always preach for a response, and that looks different. So this is how we're going to end. If I've said something this morning that you know is something you need to pick up and do, then I want you to stand. I'm not going to get people to say what it is, but you know you've got things to do as you walk away. It might be you need to embrace intimacy with God again in a new, fresh way. It might be that you think you've got stagnant in your learning and you need to start thinking about what your input is, reading and watching and listening to things. It might be you know you need to pursue discipleship and community and be vulnerable and invite others into your life in a new way. It might be you want to grow and steward and maximize the gifts that God's given you. It might be that you've not been watching your own life and you know that you need to be more introspective and more aware of what God's doing in you and around you to work with it. If any of those things are true for you, I'd love you to stand. Okay. I'm going to finish with these two things and then hand over to Jan. First thing is I'm going to do is pray. Father, thank you you've spoken to us. We remember God in James where it says that if we hear the word of God and we walk away and forget it, we like someone who looks into a mirror and forgets our face. We don't want to forget our faces. We don't want to forget what you've said to us. So God, would you remind us and would you give us thoughts and ideas about what to do to turn what you've spoken to us into action and reality? In your name, Jesus. Amen. The second thing, and the last thing I say is this. Go and tell someone what you've just stood up and responded to. 
Go and tell someone and say, can you help me with this? Some of you just know that the reason why I say that is this. It's not a legalistic thing. It's this. As you speak it out, you know that you're going to actually put commitment behind it because it's come out. For some of you, it's because you know there'll be an accountability because someone's going to come to you and go, hey, how are you doing with that? And then you've got to have like kind of weird, awkward conversations where you don't lie, but kind of Christian lie. Oh, and no one wants to do that. But for some of you, it's actually the first step of kind of go, right, this is not just thought and intention, this is action. So, yeah, that's a bit of a challenge. So thank you very much, and yeah, bless you.